Welcome to the Healthy Jasmine podcast, a panel discussion on behaviors, innovations, and trends in health and self-care. My name is Christophe Choquet. I'm a global keynote speaker on the future of health and self-care business, and I'm also the author of the book called Healthusiasm. Now, if you're new to the show, you might wonder what Healthusiasm is all about. Well, Healthusiasm is the aspiration that we all have to be healthy and happy. And as a result of this, every company or organization is now more than ever focused on making their customers healthier and happier. And so, every month I discuss with a panel of experts the positive changes that are shaping our health and happiness. This is the first episode of the second season. And in the show, the panel will discuss if rewarding good health behaviors is something, nothing or everything, and also what the Barbie movie means or rather could or should mean for health and self-care. And for this discussion, we have three of your beloved experts in the panel. Calling in from Barcelona is our digital health connector, Aline Noiset. Hola. Our American in Paris and medical expert in digital health, Aditi Joshi. Hi, everyone. And from London, customer experience and research expert, Krupa Suter. Hi, everybody. This means we are missing our human experience expert, Mo Suina. But nevertheless, together, we will today again amplify the health enthusiasms that we see in articles, new business ventures, or simply even in the world around us. So tell me, Aditi, what are the health enthusiasms that you witnessed in the past month? So I'm going to start out with something positive because I know that I have a tendency to think through things as, and look at how it's going to affect the health system in general. But we were talking about, well, a couple of things. Amazon Clinic launched, so again... Amazon is starting out to expand on what kind of telehealth use cases they are using. But what I wanted to talk about today is that they've actually started expanding how they're using other parts of their clinic and clinical workflows. So one is using AI for scribes for scribes and workflow efficiency. So the idea is that they have a health scribe where they can generate clinical notes from the conversations that patients and clinicians are having. We've all been using ChatGPT. We all like have experimented with Bard maybe as well and figured out how and what works for both our speech and what we write. And so it's interesting that we're going to be using that for clinical notes. I've tried a little, not with the AWS, but I've tried some other companies' clinical scribes and some of them are actually really good. And I find it will be really helpful because a lot of what patients complain about sometimes is that we're not paying attention to them because we're typing or we're taking notes. And this takes away that problem. So you actually can concentrate on the patient without distractions and then figure out later the edits you need to do if it's really that good. So I find that would be really interesting. And then the other thing they're doing, which is not related to this, but really they're figuring out ways to store large amounts of medical images. So consider uh, radiology images and being able to upload it. So generally, most patients don't really have access to those images. And even for clinicians, so when I would try to find radiological images, I would have to pop into another screen in another program And this may take that away because it'll be in one place and it'll be able to store everything. And so people will be able to access not just the reports, but the actual images. Yeah, it's super interesting. And I think in previous shows, we talked about how even Microsoft is using ChatGPT to do pretty much the same. They have this uh, company called Nuance, and it would also do pretty much the similar things like transcribing patient um, interactions. And we noticed, uh, I think a month ago in June, June 2023, the Mayo Clinic hinted at broader plans with Google, uh, Google Cloud, where they would want to do pretty much the same thing as what I think 
AWS is now offering as well. And what they want to do with the cloud that Google is offering, they want to unlock the sources of information and find new information, find new interpretations of the information uh, and the, the, the overall very complex patient medical history, of course. What was interesting, by the way, Related to hospitals and you know the way that they use AI and all these types of services, whether it's coming from Microsoft, AWS, or Google, is that apparently the Wall Street Journal they um, reported that Google is already testing its MedPalm 2 AI chat technology, which is basically the chat GPT from Google, if you will. Um, but it's been tested in the Mayo Clinic. Uh, or the Mayo Clinic, um, as, as some may say. So basically as well to, um, although it's not even ready, right? But um, to do the same thing, to analyze data and to make sure that we, we can learn and maybe even unburden uh, some of the administration in, in hospitals. By the way, I've heard that um, British National Health Services and UK, uh, Krupa, is giving 27 million in grants to adopt generative AI solutions in hospitals. So I think we we'll see a lot of things happening there with AI and hospitals. But not everything is good with AI, right, Aditi? There, you, you can be negative now. Just, just go. No, that's fair. Yeah, because I can't stop. You know, I just want to make sure, because we talk about AI a lot, and if you looked at everyone's feeds, LinkedIn, or any of the feeds where we interact, people are really excited about AI. But, you know, in the U.S., there's always this problem of what we pay for in healthcare. And so there's an entire system based on looking at what claims are happening and deciding whether they're paid for or not. And there have been cases where insurance companies are using AI and determining that this patient shouldn't have this paid for because technically they should be better. Uh, they should be better not by now based on this algorithm. And there are cases and many stories of people who are not better. They were actually worse and they needed more care. So there is this like limit too that we don't necessarily know how all these algorithms work. We have to still look at individuals as individuals. And we certainly shouldn't pay for people if they shouldn't, excuse me, deny paying for people's healthcare if they are still needing more care. Definitely not relying on a machine, but really looking at the patient, right? And this is what people are worried about, that it's going to become a machine that's telling me what to do rather than looking at me as a human. And it's already happening. And so we have to make sure that we're overcoming that before it becomes worse. Yeah, we're not there yet. And there's definitely some, um, some things to uh, keep an eye on. Just a funny note on AI. I saw, I, th- I saw something passing by by Andreessen Horowitz. We, we talked about him in the, the previous episode. Um, but apparently somebody from the um, VC company was invited, you're going to love this, to be part of a panel. And the panel would talk about, and this is the title, how can AI, AI be used with fax machines to unburden the administration in hospitals. Fax machines in hospitals, healthcare and AI, and there's a lot to be discussed still, I think. But we're, no, we're nowhere there yet. I think it's also people from Google, even if it's tested in MedPalm 2, is tested in the Mayo Clinic, they say that we, we still need to learn a lot. And I think your fear is, is, is rightfully so, Aditi. But let's just look on the bright side. There's a lot of things that can happen with AI. And I believe that Apple is doing quite some stuff with AI as well, and more specifically with the AirPods, Aline. Exactly. Yeah. So it was announced this week that Apple just filed a patent of what looks like AirPods that we know with biosensors inside that can track brain activity. So the electrodes would be in the earphones and they would measure biosignals and electrical activity from the brain. So we can imagine that the data collected from the airports could, for instance, tell us when we need a break, 
which music makes us more productive and also detects early signs of Alzheimer's. So quite, quite exciting. Yeah, and totally. And it's really about how can we live better with, with ourselves? How can we optimize our own functioning? And that's a, a creative segue I made here because I want to talk about human functioning. Because the WHO uh, came up with something new, an indicator to measure health, which is called human functioning. Apparently, and correct me if I'm wrong, Aditi, but I think there's two indicators that are commonly used to monitor health in populations or in society at large, and that is morbidity and mortality. So if we're talking epidemiology, we're talking about morbidity and mortality in general. Now, the WHO wants to add a third indicator, which is called human functioning. And the idea behind this new way of thinking, or maybe even this paradigm shift, is the following. They want to look at the combination of biological health and lived health. How do people function in society? In a way, it's like the value that hate that health has on the individual, but also the value that health has on society at large, and even vice versa. How does society has an impact on health? And so the reason why they are shifting this focus has to do with the sustainable development goals, you know, the SDGs. These SDGs were set up by the United Nations, and basically the aim of these SDGs is to face global challenges together. You, you probably have heard of these SDGs. But one particular SDG, the third one, is about good health and well-being. More particularly, it says to ensure healthy living and promote well-being for all ages. And so the idea or the conviction by the WHO and many of the um, scientific people behind it is that if we only would look at morbidity and mortality, it would not be sufficient to achieve this sustainable development goal of good health and well-being. And that's why they want to add human functioning as a third indicator to monitor. I think it's a, it's a very interesting development. It might require a, a total shift in thinking. Rightfully so, it's called a paradigm shift. So I'm very curious to see what it, um, it will bring, but it could profoundly benefit, you know, health practices, even health research, education, policy, you know. It will require even a different multidisciplinary approach if we think about how this health has an impact on society and vice versa. Talking about society, something is happening in the UK, isn't it, Cooper? Yes. So, well, there was something that happened worldwide uh, last week. So that was World IVF Day, and that was on the 25th of July. Um, the World Health Organization, for people who may not know, the data shows that infertility affects one in six people worldwide. So it's an extremely difficult time, both emotionally and physically, for both for, for those involved. Anyhow, something is happening in Scotland. And it's to do with our king, King Charles. And what I was reading about recently is that he's established a dedicated team of fertility experts, but not just medical doctors. He has moved into including naturopaths, um, acupuncturists and nutritionists. And for those who don't know, King Charles has actually been a long-time advocate of alternative uh, methods. So, for example, he was long promoting organic farming, for example, and he's promoted that for the last 30 to 40 years, so way before many people were talking about it, and just generally holistic living. So this program actually will address combination of natural therapies that he will work on with a number of his experts, which will include herbal supplements, dietary modifications and stress reduction techniques. 
there'll be naturopaths on hand, nutritionists and acupuncture too for the physical side of the uh, treatment, but also he's incorporating emotional well-being, which we know fertility doesn't just affect the body, it affects your emotions too. So he'll have counsellors on hand as well. And what they're going to do is select 40 lucky women. I'm not too sure how this uh, selection is going to be made, but each of those will be in Scotland and they'll have, con- they'll have comprehensive assessments to identify any potential barriers to conception and then they'll have uh, personalised treatment plans. So, for example, in a UK IVF, one round can cost around £20,000 and that's just the medical side of it. So that's obviously private and, and that would be for a top end clinic. And if you're lucky enough to have it on the NHS and it's being pulled, you may just get one round. But otherwise, it's costing thousands of pounds. And then you have all this additional nutrition and whatnot on top. So the fact that these women are going to be offered it is just so amazing. And it's going to be really interesting to see what the outcome of this, because it could be really life changing for anyone involved. Yeah, I love it. And going from fertility and making children to actually innovations for children's health. I got one from Alba Health. It's a Danish foodie startup that is dedicated to providing digital gut health support for children. And they just announced that it ha- that they have secured about two million in pre-seed funding, which is uh, quite a bit of money, certainly for pre-seed. But the reason why I think this is interesting is because there isn't so much innovation in child health. I believe it's not that I see uh, a lot, at least. And we know that gut health is already important. So knowing that they will focus now on gut health for children is, is, is I think, very interesting because I think there's a, a lot of scientific support that. That, that we know that the way that people eat or children eat very early on in their lives might definitely affect their health outcomes later. So very interesting development in child health, a, a lovely innovation. Aline, you had another innovation for us to share. Exactly. So it's also coming from the UK. From uh, So researchers from the University of Leeds have been working on a tiny surgical robot that could transform detection and treatment of cancers. So starting with lung cancer. I think it's, it's really good because we know that uh, lung cancer is on the rise, especially around, uh, amongst uh, women, and that it is the highest cancer, it has the highest cancer mortality rate. So it, it's good news. So it's, it's actually a two, two millimeters tiny robot that can travel deep into the lungs, and it also it's controlled by magnets, and it can treat the first signs of cancers. It can actually reach the smallest bronchial tubes of the lungs. So I think it, it's fantastic news, can really make treatment more effective and more targeted. And the other use case that they were mentioning in that article is that after that, they could use it also for brain surgery, for more precise sur- surgery. All right, it's amazing. I'm curious to see when it comes to market, because I've seen it a couple of years ago as well in a presentation by IMEC, a Belgian tech company, where they actually have very specific nanotechnologies that can go into the blood and actually do similar things. So a lot of health enthusiasms coming our way indeed. I have a couple of weird ones, weird ones to end with or funny ones if you want. Real quick, quick fire. Does anybody know what the Paris syndrome is? Aditi, do you know what it is? Yeah, I've heard of it. So it's an, I don't know if you, did you suffer from it when you moved to Paris? Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> but I also don't glorify Paris in that manner, but I, I know exactly what it is. So it's indeed, I mean, if people glorify Paris up front, apparently tourists are so disappointed when they arrive in Paris that they even risk to faint. 
So it's a, it's a funny thing. It's, it's not an official disease. It's not on the DSM-5, but apparently it happens a lot and definitely with Japanese tourists. So here you go. Something that you might not have known. Has anybody seen the latest announcements by Hims and Hers, the San Francisco-based telemedicine wellness company? They brought out some mints. Uh, so it's it, they're, they're called heart mints. Any idea what they could do? They're actually, you know, Viagra in mint form. So that's why they called heart mints, I guess. And then finally, as a, the last one to wrap things up here, South Koreans are one year younger since June the 28th. Have you heard about that? Apparently in South Korea, the traditional practice of considering babies is that, I mean, I'll, I'll put it that way. The traditional practice is to consider babies one year old when they are born. But the thing is, that's the Korean age. And so in, in international standards are different. I mean, we saw that zero, we're zero years old, right? When we, when we get bored. And that's the international age. And so they, they now changed it back to the international age because there was, you know, consensus that everybody wanted to be, have the same age. So that, which means that basically South Koreans are now one year younger than they were considered previously. But it's even more complex because they also have calendar age, which is everybody turns one year older on the first year of January. And that is the age that is used if you want to buy alcohol or nicotine. So three types of ages, which now they want to, you know, switch to the uh, international age, which we all use. It's not that they are healthier or that their biological age is one year younger, but um, legally speaking, they are all one year younger. And so it is. I thank you all for your health enthusiasms. It is in, in health enthusiasm world indeed. I mean, there's so many positive changes that are making our world a little healthier and happier every day. If you want to know more about these health enthusiasms, go to healththusiasm.com and subscribe to our newsletter. The health enthusiasms from this show will be summarized for you into a monthly newsletter. And by subscribing, you will also have access to other exclusive content like health enthusiasms that might not have made the show. Okay. That's it. Let's move to the next segment of the Health Enthusiasm podcast. Is it something, nothing, or everything? So every month, one of the panelists brings an idea, an innovation, or evolution forward that sparked their health enthusiasm. The rest of the panel will then debate and share their opinion about it. Do they find it something, nothing, or everything? Aline, what sparked your health enthusiasm this month? So I read an interesting article about GoodRx. So it's a US-based online pharmacy and telehealth app. And they just launched a digital medicine cabinet. So to reward people for taking their meds with the idea to address medication adherence. And we know it's, it's a big topic. So that medicine cabinet enables users to check price comparisons for the medicine, to get reminders to take them, and also to refill them. And they can even earn financial rewards for taking the medicines. And why is that important? So studies show that 50% of the patients with chronic illnesses struggle to take their medications as they should. And in the US, for instance, that represents a cost to the healthcare system of roughly 300 billion annually. So it's a lot. So there's already many companies active in the space focusing on reminding people to take their, their medicine. But good ERACs are actually positioning themselves a bit differently, focusing more on the barriers to medication. So addressing more the cost 
and the lack of insurance for the, the, the people. So, but basically they want to reward people for staying healthy. That's the idea of the medicine cabinet. And I, I also like that story because it reminded me of a, a conference that I attended in France about a month ago. And there was someone from the, the French social security, the national national system. And during the Q&A session, someone from the audience asked him a question that I found very interesting. It was like, could we imagine that national social security, like the French one, could reward citizens for living healthy lifestyle? And the answer from that person was, no, it's too avant-garde. So now I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that. So I've got many like two big questions around that. Is uh, rewarding people for taking their meds, is that something, nothing or everything? Should we reward people for taking their, their, their medicine? Is that the way to go? Would it ensure long-term sustainability adherence in your sense? And my second question related to that conference, like should public insurances, and especially in European countries where the system are different as we know, should they reward people for living healthier lifestyles? And because it will cost less to the people in the, to the systems in the long term. Aditi, our doctor, what do you think? Well, I'll start out by saying that obviously financial incentives work. If you look at any book on behavioral economics, it works, including for healthcare. And people have tried various things for incentivizing people. So it could work. And in the U.S., generally, you know, they don't pay outright. But what they do is they give you breaks on your insurance or they give you money back if you meet certain criteria. So that those programs have already existed and they work to varying degrees. I'll say personally that when I've tried them, sometimes what they're asking you to do is just like the barrier is a little bit too high. So a lot of people may not actually succeed at them. But I think that's the goal. So I think that's the problem, right? So looking, you have to like figure out what the incentives are for the system that you're at. The U.S. does not have the incentive to actually decrease costs. They just don't. So they try these programs, but I don't think they make it easier for anybody to actually do them. So saying that, the second thing I would say is that where is the end of this, right? Because when you're incentivizing people using finances, but it's not to actually improve their health, that there has to be like another incentive as well, because otherwise you're just going to be paying them forever. I mean, is that the goal? Not really, right? You want them to get into the habit or uh, find another reason to be invested in their health so that they don't do that or don't need the finances eventually. We assume that people want their health to be good. They want to have good health. But what I think people fail to realize, and all doctors will know this, is that a lot of the chronic diseases, the things that are not healthy for you, they actually don't have any consequences until they do. So high blood pressure is a good example. Smoking is a great example, right? People can do that for years and years and years, have uncontrolled blood pressure. They can smoke for years. And then eventually it will catch up with you. They always do. You're going to have something that is irreversible. They're going to have a health consequence that they can't do anything about, but then it's too late, right? And so I think because we can't feel those incentives, we can't actually understand what those consequences are. It makes it much harder to incentivize the health. So in those cases, maybe finances would work, but I think, you know, I don't think I would do it forever. So in that example, I would say, all right, so once you have gotten into the habit of, let's say, taking your blood pressure medicine, then maybe you don't need the financial incentives, right? For smoking, that takes a much longer to quit. But it could be that for every year that you don't smoke or for every month that you don't smoke, there's some incentive until you've really quit. But yeah, so I think that, you know, it could work, but I just don't think it's a long-term plan. We need another incentive for getting people to improve their health. Yeah, that was exactly one of the points from the article that people don't think it will be sustainable in the long run. Like people also get bored. And even of those awards, like after some time, they're not even interested in that, in, in those rewards. Yeah. Krupa, what do you think? Something, nothing of everything? 
And what about the NHS? Like, could we imagine giving rewards to uh, citizens or maybe they're doing something around it already? There have been schemes that I've been reading about related to rewarding people. But we must remember the NHS is heavily burdened here. And obviously, it's publicly funded. And there are so many cuts. And so it's a really, it's a really difficult one for the UK and how we deal with it. But this, this whole concept of rewarding goes back quite a while. You know, it's a commonly known behavioral psychology technique. Uh, everyone may have heard of the study from Pavlov's dogs related to stimulus and response. And in this case, the stimulus is obviously the medication, hoping to get better. The response is, you know, taking the medication or not. And, you know, you're going to have a negative consequence, obviously, if you don't take it. But yeah, as Aditi said, behavioural science has shown that actually positive reinforcement leads to better outcomes rather than taking it away. And we know in the UK where we have um, ad campaigns on health, you know, if there's anything that shows a negative outcomes, it's, all, it's never going to lead to a positive outcome. You've got to show the benefits of actually doing something instead of the public. So what I believe, and I was actually reading a few studies on this, is that the short term, we know that short term works better rather than long term. So in this case, giving people the medication or reminding them they will take that medication and short term incentives work better because of the instant gratification rather than long term. But I do believe, for me, I'm going towards nothing to something on this because if we can begin to nudge people in the right direction as Aditi was saying once you've started to continuously take your blood pressure medication what's the next thing rather than just having that same reward I feel like that would be far more beneficial but what's missing for me is that it's always about treating how much education are we actually doing on prevention if we're treating, I know it's going to be a huge burden on the system. And for me, it's around prevention and preventing that education should be coming much earlier. We've talked about children in the past and actually starting at home, for example, that will ultimately reduce the burden on the health system. But the questions that I was asking relating to this article is who's going to fund this, especially in the UK, if it becomes something that the public fund is a huge issue. And then what happens after the incentives stop? We just go back to square one. And then we must remember that this was actually a digital health solution. Not everybody has digital health. Not everyone has access to smartphones. And so what about the people who don't? And how are they going to, what's going to happen to their health? So, yeah, I have too many questions on this for me to say that it's something or everything. I'm leaning more towards some, uh, nothing to something. Okay. You know, in my view, I see it more. It, it will be an investment from the the health systems and we know they're in trouble but at the end it will reduce the cost like in the medium long term because those people who are doing prevention that you're saying they're not getting a cancer that's a cost that won't be incurred to the to the system christophe what's your view on that something nothing or everything i'm just going to be the, the health enthusiast here and i i want to say this is everything or i want to at least i hope this is everything and i, I think there's already some signs today that that this could be really become everything. I want to speak about two things. You mentioned avant-garde. Is it too avant-garde? And I want to talk about the long-term perspective that um, both Aditi and Krupa mentioned, mentioned. First, the avant-garde thing. The most downloaded health app in 2022 was Sweatcoin. Previous years, it was always MyFitnessPal, Strava, Fitbit. In 2022, the most downloaded health app was Sweatcoin. 
Uh, it was a top one app in 58 different countries and it had a total of 52 million downloads, which is enormous. So what is it, Switcoin? It's actually a digital currency that you receive for moving. So it's basically it's a move, move to earn type of approach. You can earn 10 Switcoins per day with a free plan and the 10 Switcoins you achieve by stepping 10,000 steps per day. It's not a lot of money. If you look at it on an entire year, if you imagine if you would walk for 365 days, you would earn $22, which is not a lot of 20 euros, let's say. So it's not a lot of money. But I mean, they offer a variety of different ways of motivating people. Because if it would just only be the $20, $20, it would never work. But you have specific discounts and these discounts vary, they change. So you can use your sweat coins to have discounts which value then more than just the $20. Uh, you can also participate in auctions. So you can use your sweat coins to participate in an auction and you can win an Apple Watch or you can win something else, which is valued a lot more as well. And there's a lot of things that uh, that where you can boost the gamification kind of type of things where you can boost your your activity for 20 minutes per day or you can you can you can buy more coins and all of the all, all of those things. The reason why it is super interesting is because they're very creative in the way that they motivate people. And Compared to, I mean, we're talking about barriers are too high and what is the barrier that you need to put and what are the goals that we want to achieve. Well, these incentive schemes that Sweatcoin is using is not related to a specific goal. It's just a continuous incentive. The more that you, the, the little things that you're doing is already rewarded. And it's rewarded by discounts, as I mentioned. It's rewarded by the coins that you can exchange with 300 different parties, parties um, a thousand different products and services that you can um, do. I mean, you asked the question to Krupa, does the NHS already does something today? Well, the NHS did a project with Sweatcoin already. I think it was, I can't remember, I think it was called the Health Incentive Program around something. I can't remember. They co-designed it at least a prevention program. And it was a 10 weeks program for people at risk for diabetes type 2. And so what they saw is that during these 10 weeks, and it's only 10 weeks, it's not, not really long term. Um, I'll come to the long term in, in a little bit, but it's already very good. But then because those... In those 10 weeks, 92% of the people completed the program. If you compare that to an industry average, it's, the industry average is about 25%. If you compare that to other initiatives by the National Diabetes Prevention Program that was done in the UK as well, it was only 20%. So 92% is, is extremely high. And what they saw is that people walked a lot more, they lost weight. And so only just positive numbers that came out. And I really like this kind of, you know, move to earn types of approaches, because I really think that even if it's only small, if you're a little bit creative, you can really have people move and be healthier. I think Singapore used the Apple Watch to reward citizens for healthy activities. Whoop, the company Whoop, you might know from the, the bracelet, they, um, they actually pay employees to sleep. So if they achieve their sleeping goals with 85%, they are paid 100 euro more. So there's a, there's a ton of examples out there. And so I'm always thinking about if this works in the consumer world and prevention settings, how can we extrapolate that into, you know, more value-based healthcare? And I think the second question was, should insurance do that? And, and what is the long-term goal? I think it's already happening with Vitality, right? I know if you don't know Vitality, Vitality is actually rewarding people, their clients, if they are being healthier. It's a shared value insurance model. So it's not it's, it's basically the same as value-based outcome healthcare systems. But the idea there is that if the patient or the client is doing something good and it's beneficial for the health insurance company, then the money goes back also to 
declined, which works really well. Because if you look at South Africa, where it's existed already for 20 years, so that's a long-term thing I wanted to talk about. If you look at South Africa, where it exists already for 20 years, the Vitality members, they, I have some numbers here. Let me just quickly read them. They exercise 23% more than non-Vitality members. So it's the incentives work in that way that 25% more workouts, 9% more healthier food consumption. They have 30% lower hospital costs compared to other insurance companies. Their mortality rates are 45% lower. And with the most engaged clients, it sometimes even goes up to 76% lower mortality rates. And apparently, and I found this number really strange, but on average, the vitality clients live 13 to 20 years longer. So talking about, you know, long-term effects, uh, it's, they've been doing it for 20 years. They see these types of numbers. Obviously, the question is, if you're healthy, do you want to, do you go to Vitality? And is it biased in that way regard that there's only healthy people subscribing for the Vitality approach? But still, these numbers are are not just marginal differences. They're, they're massive differences. So I really believe that, first of all, this is not that avant-garde yet. I mean, there's a, there's, there's a healthy base of people that really want to, move into that space. And if we look at what is what has been happening in South Africa for 20 years, there is a potential that it might have a long-term impact as well. So I'm, I'm really a fan and I really hope this is everything. I agree. And I hope that the, the health systems see those examples out there. I know the systems are different, but they can inspire them in some way. And for us citizens to, to benefit from it. I just want to know, but I just need everyone to really understand that that's not how medicine works. And so anybody who actually practices, that's just not how most patients engage with their healthcare. Like it just doesn't work that way. It'll work for a while, but it won't work forever. Even if they're rewarded in different creative ways over time? I really think it has to be at some point coming from themselves. People have to figure out what that incentive is for themselves. It cannot be external forever. It can be just become a habit, right? But I think if you keep giving incentives to people they're not actually motivated to find that incentive for themselves. That's why we'll see patients all the time, all the time, that'll have like a massive heart attack and then they'll finally quit smoking. That happens all the time, right? So we want to avoid that, but we have to figure out how to give them real information. The education might work. It doesn't really work, right? I I used to do that all the time and just say, this is what happens until it works. And that might give some people more information, but it has to come from themselves too. I, mean, I agree. It's I don't easy. know if anyone I used to smoke. I mean, I am shocked how many people in Europe smoke still. But it's like you can't, all the people know it's bad for you. It's like, how do you actually get them to quit? Right. So that's the difference. Interesting. There's clearly, this is clearly something, and it's clearly something that we can talk about for a little longer. But now it's time for something else. Thanks for that discussion. In the dis- in this health season world, we see the boundaries of industries blurring between the worlds of healthcare, wellness, and consumer businesses. You can see that consumer businesses are slowly moving into wellness and healthcare space, while the healthcare industry is also paying more attention to what is happening outside of their own industry. This brings the following question. What behavior, innovation, or trends from one industry can be worthwhile for another industry? Or in other words, what should we bring inside out or outside in? So tell me, Krupa, what's the ID, the innovation or evolution that you would consider bringing inside out or outside in? So it's going to be very rude for me not to mention the film 
that or the film that everybody's talking about at the moment. It's not Oppenheimer. No, I'm referring to Barbie. Let's just talk a little bit about this movie. It's a current record breaker from my former employer where I had so much fun working and I'm so very heartwarmed to see how well it's doing. Just some quick stats. So on the opening weekend, the movie actually took $356 million. And that's the biggest debut for, for a film ever directed by a woman. It's so lovely to see. And we know that the movie has been doing really well, not just the movie in itself. And I've seen it and I really loved it myself as well. But the ramifications of the movie are reaching far wider than just a film and a doll brand. So as we know, Barbie is a doll brand and it's the biggest doll brand in the world from uh, Mattel. And what I've been reading about is uh, there have been several articles or not just several articles. It's been everywhere, all over my LinkedIn. It's been in the news. It's just been every, everywhere that I'm, I'm looking. And it's the impact that it's actually having generally, but the impact on women's health. So this is a bit, of a bit of a spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen it. But towards the end of the movie, we see that Barbie goes for an appointment and uh, she goes for an appointment to see uh, her gynecologist. And the reason why this is so pivotal is because we know that women's health is underfunded and under-researched. We see that in the UK with the launch of the Women's Health Strategy. But it also raises this question on awareness Will this lead to more awareness for girls, for women, for those who've got reproductive organs or for their partners, the men in their life to visit their or to serve as a reminder to visit their practitioner for early or regular checkups? Because we know that women's health after the pandemic hasn't really recovered. We know that breast cancer is on the rise due to the pandemic. For example, we are way behind on treatment. In the US, ZocDoc, which is actually a health marketplace, unveiled a new initiative to inspire women to prioritise going to see their gynaecologists. So this is my question. Given this is a film by a toy manufacturer, what, if any, do you think the implications could be on health? And do you think the healthcare system should leverage the success of the actual film? I'll go to Aileen. Well, so I saw the film as well, and it was very interesting because, like you, I read a lot. I didn't read the article, I just saw the headings about the film, like Barbie and women's health, and my expectations were very high. And when I saw the film, I was actually quite disappointed. I expected way more, like it's only for me like a tiny second in the film. And I think for me, the buzz or the impact is actually the noise around the film, not the film itself, because... If I put myself in the in the in the foot of like a, a teenager going to see the film, doesn't tell them much. I think the the noise around that, what Zogdoc is doing, as you were mentioning, all all the articles, interviews of gynecologists explaining why girls should be there. So that was the incentive to write articles and to educate. I think the issue, and maybe that's related to the, the previous discussion around rewards for healthcare explaining to girls why they should go to the gynecologist. For me, just seeing the film, her being so excited going to the gynecologist, and that was also quite funny to see, well, I'm not sure we are really so excited going to the gynecologist, but maybe that was also a good, good thing for the people looking at the film saying, well, maybe don't be afraid of it. It's going to be fine. Maybe you're going to be surprised once it happens. But why do you need to go 
just going is not enough. Many explaining them what will happen or yeah, I think for me that that what was uh, was important and um, I really like what Zogdoc are, are doing because we have to remember that there was a decrease in uh, in prevention and checkups following COVID. And now we're seeing a lot of uh, cases of, of cancer. So reminding people to go and do their checkups is, is very important. But again, that's more like interpretation of, uh, of the film for me. Thanks, Aileen. Yeah, some really, yeah, really good points there, especially about the you expecting it to be longer or more content on that piece on women's health. Aditi, what do you think? Have you seen the movie? I have seen the movie. I saw it last weekend. I don't actually think that I expect, expected anything to be about women's health particularly. So I didn't have that expectation. So I wasn't disappointed by that. I thought that movie was great for exactly what it was. I thought it was hilarious. I think it actually is more relevant to people who are older who used to play with Barbies. And that's why I thought it was really funny. But as far as using that toward women's health, I think it would be difficult because it is actually just a very small part of that movie, but it is um, interesting that she's excited about it. You know, I'll say that there maybe is some part that she's like, okay, now I am part of this group. I'm a real human. I'm a real like human woman because I need to go see the gynecologist. And so there might be some feeling of camaraderie in that, that I think is actually happening in this entire change with women's health, especially in health tech and this whole idea that there is a group of people who need this healthcare, and so a lot of them are building it. So I see that as part of that zeitgeist versus, or um, as opposed to that causing it. I think it's just more of an indication of it. Yeah, thank you. Crystal? Yeah, so I haven't seen the movies. Uh, and it's not because I did not want to, it's just because I never go to the movies, basically. Um, I'm, definitely when it comes out, I'll, I'll, I'll watch it for sure. But I haven't seen a movie. So um, so I had, did some research and I had, to, I had some thinking about it. I read some articles. There's one thing I'd love to say first is that we're talking about the impact that Barbie has on women's health and you know whether that small part in the movie um, is actually relevant or not. But you have to think about it. Do you, do you know when, when Barbie came out, Krupa? And what year it was about? I should know this. I want to say the 1960s. I will look it up. It's a little earlier. It's March 9, 1959. So that is basically before oral contraceptives were available, before women were included in clinical studies, before you know anything of the women's health evolution that we're seeing in the recent years was happening. I think it's really amazing to see how basically a doll which was, you know, criticized for un- unhealthy body ideals and, you know, reinforcing gender stereotypes and what have you is now becoming basically a role model in a sense for women's health or even diversity and body positivity. Um, and I really I really love that 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 evolution. It didn't happen overnight, of course. There's a lot of things that happened in the meantime. There was a the meditation doll, the diversity dolls, I know in 2016, Barbie had a YouTube channel where she said she was struggling with depression. So, I mean, it just didn't just come overnight, this, this, this change of, of, of role model. But I, I really think it's, it's very interesting. And I love the impact that it might have in some ways uh, on health and self-care. And I think it's not even, if you will, fully captured yet. Or I think there's even more potential. If I read the, the articles uh, about Barbie and I added Barbie and health, you had a ton of articles that came that came forward, and they were mainly about three things. Three things that I think were very interesting, and that show how much such a franchise or such an icon or such a doll or, or such a movie can have the way that people look at health. And the three things that I saw always coming by was mental health, skin health, 
and physical health more related to feet and ankles specifically. <laughs> but the mental health part was about Barbie core. I don't know if you heard about Barbie core. If you're on TikTok, you might have seen it. Barbie core has about 9 million views on TikTok. But it is, it's basically you dress up like Barbie. But the thing is behind it, it's an aesthetic trend. But the thing is behind it is that anybody is doing it. It's not just your typical Barbie looking girl that is doing it. Everybody, even men are dressing up in pink in a sort of Barbie core style. And the, the idea behind it, I'm not quite sure whether it resonates really well or it's just a fad a bit like we saw with the ice bucket challenge. If people realize how much, how much of a change it does, but it, what it does inherently and subconsciously maybe is that it showcases Barbie in a different light. It's because everybody's dressing up in different forms, different types of genders and all of that. It's more of a, if you will, an indirect promotion for diversity and body positivity, which makes it easier for people to, to recognize themselves and feel, feel better. I'm, I'm also a Barbie or I can also be a Barbie. So that's the first thing that I always saw coming back, Barbie core and the impact it might have on, on mental health. The second thing was related to skin health. Apparently, you know, to have this kind of Barbie-like skin, the movie hired somebody named Jasmina Vico, which is a London-based skin professional. And she worked with the entire cast. And she was the head of hair and makeup. But the thing that she did was not only, you know, putting on makeup, she also helped people with living healthier so that their skin looked healthier. And so I have a list, I'll quickly go through it because it's way too much, but she helped Marco and, and the rest of the cast with glow lasers and cold lasers, with lead therapy, with lymphatic drainage, with pressure point massage. She applied the Wim Hof method with breath work and cold therapy. She did soundscapes and infrasonic resonance sessions. She had a whole gut protocol with where people needed to eat probiotics and on, uh, other anti-inflammatory supplements. People needed to eat fermented foods like sauerkraut and kimchi and kefir. They were eating all sorts of bitter foods and berries. They had some sort of organic milk thistle tea to protect their liver. All of that to have better skin health. And I've seen a ton of articles in fashion magazines talking about that person, Jasmina Vico, and what she did. And it really opened up an amazing debate about how to take care of your skin in different ways. So that's the second one. The third one was about feet and ankles, ankle strength or health. The Barbie food challenge, I don't know if you've seen it, at a certain moment apparently in the movie, Barbie steps out of her shoes and she continues walking like a Barbie doll on the, on the, on the, the, the tips of her feet. And apparently it's also a trend on TikTok in the meantime, and it's, it's to strengthen your ankles, it's to strengthen your, um, your feet. So I, I don't know, I, what I like about it is that there's a, a ton of articles about health that is coming from this movie. Maybe it, it, the movie itself wasn't about health, although it was a lot about you know self-love, body positivity, kindness, and all of that. But it, there's a lot, that, as, as Aline was saying, right? There's a lot of buzz around it that um, might have an impact on health and self-care. To answer your question, should healthcare do a little bit more? My question would be, or my challenge would be, how can healthcare even use such a virtual influencer to have an impact on people's health? How can we help with prevention? I know the WHO done it with Knox, which is a virtual influencer on Instagram, to have people vaccinated. So why not using Barbie? I think there's a, there's definitely an upside. There's definitely an opportunity. This is not something that we typically think of uh, or think about when from within the healthcare industry. No, thank you, Christoph. And and tip has never really been thought about with Barbie and its impact, the impact of the brand on on health 
overall. It was really lovely to see the movie yesterday, but I, I agree with Eileen. I did feel that the ending, I would have liked the ending to have been slightly longer myself. Uh, so I felt a little, little bit late, let down, but I'm really looking forward to seeing, okay, what does this do? Does this increase awareness? Does it actually lead to more women or girls uh, talking about uh, gynecology? Not just women and girls, actually, just society as a whole. Uh, families, you know, is it going to lead to conversations within families about what is gynecology, what is gynecological health? It would be really fascinating to see what this does or if it is, say, for example, just as bad as a consequence of the movie. Just to pick up on a few things you mentioned as well about uh, the implications when you saw, when you looked at Barbie and health. So skin health, this was one of Barbie's first human experiences when actually she experienced uh, cellulite. So that's probably the reason for skin health coming up as well um, within the articles, because that's what happens. She enters her human experience. And then in terms of foot and ankle health, yes, she starts off by actually walking like a Barbie. But again, one of her experiences actually is that she walks as humans do on flat feet. And it was quite a shock to all the other Barbies that are in the movie as well. And that's when she realised that actually, okay, something is happening, something is changing. And she went to see another type of Barbie. But I loved the movie and I loved how the all the different Barbies were actually working together and supporting one another. And that was really beautiful to see rather than actually women sometimes, you know, not supporting each other. And, and that was one of the core themes of the project, uh, sorry, the, of the movie as well. So yeah, if you haven't seen the movie, I do recommend it. Yeah, and if you're working in gynecology or women's health in general, maybe there's still a small window to leverage this opportunity from the Barbie movie and attract more women to your offices or make sure that they are conscious about the, the things that they would need to be doing. So with these words, I'd like to wrap up the Healthy Jason podcast for this month. Thank you for listening. If you like the show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. And by the way, you can also find us on the Shift Forward Health channel. It's a podcast channel of thought leaders who are actively designing and building the health and self-care business of tomorrow. For now, I'd like to thank our own thought leaders for their insights and health enthusiasm. Thank you, Aditi Joshi, Aline Loise, and Krupa Suter. My name is Christophe Choquet. We are the Health Enthusiasm panel, and we'd love to see you again next month for some more health enthusiasm. Ciao. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please spread the word. Tell your colleagues to tune in for all the awesomeness, then leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This show is produced by Shift Forward Health, the channel for changemakers. Subscribe to Shift Forward Health on your favorite podcast app, and you'll be subscribed to our entire library of shows. See our full lineup at shiftforwardhealth.com. One subscription, all the podcasts you need, and it's all for free. And remember, we might have a lot of work to do in healthcare, but we'll get there faster together. Thanks again.